Hello and welcome to this week's instalment of Nicholas Investment Insights. We have a special guest this week in Jonathan Rockford, a sourcer, trader and portfolio manager in the interesting world of Australian alternate, alternative credit through his investment company, Narrow Road Capital. Jonathan draws on experience working for countries, companies sorry, such as Commonwealth Bank, Lehman Brothers and Rothschild and last joined us on the show at the end of October last year. And it's fair to say that a lot has happened in the world since then. So Jonathan Rockford, welcome to, or welcome back to, Nicholas Investment Insights. Oh, thanks for having me back, gents. It's good to be here, and, and certainly a lot has changed since the last uh, last time we chatted. Plenty to talk about, absolutely. And I'm also joined, of course, by Nicholas Wells, Head of Investments, Damien Classen. G'day, Damien. Hi, Tim. Wonderful. And just a quick reminder that before we get started, to subscribe on YouTube and click on the notification bell to be notified of when we go live or have a new webinar to watch. Uh, or follow us on your preferred podcast platform. And for those listening in live now, feel free to drop in your questions in the chat box below along the way. So let's uh, kick off with our agenda. So we're gonna start with the corporate debt markets. How locked up are they and what will clear them? We'll then uh, be uh, asking Jonathan what he's seeing in the distressed debt markets uh, in his day-to-day -day role. Uh, we'll then have some reflection on how past credit crises have played out. And then we'll, of course, round out with some reflections on how these uh, themes impact the portfolios that we run every day here at Nucleus Wealth. So with no further ado, let's uh, kick off from the top. And Jonathan, uh, corporate debt markets, how locked up are they, mate? Well, we, for listeners, it's, it's, it's a very interesting time in that uh, we organised this uh, chat probably about three or four months ago. We, mm. we, we booked in this time. And if I was to give a brief update on, on where credit markets are at, for the last three to four weeks, just like the stock market, credit markets have, have taken a pummeling. Mm. But last night, overnight overseas, it was basically a clean hit to the jaw and they've gone down to the canvas. Uh, so last night was really a big hit. And, and I guess what that means more in practical terms is that whilst things were trading and, and levels were falling, Last night was really a night of, I guess, if you ring up and you say, oh, can someone give me a bid? The number that comes back says you are distressed and I'm going to take advantage of that. Wow. So credit markets have, have really broken down in terms of the ability to trade things um, other than, you know, the very top of the capital structure that most liquid kind of govy bond things. And even in govy bonds, there's problems with trading those um, at times in the markets at the moment. Um, so definitely back to uh, you know financial crisis like situation at this point. It's wow. it's very tough times, um, and for people who are levered up, who have gone long and taken a lot of risk, there's no exit mm -hmm. um, for for a lot of those situations. Or if there is an exit, it's at a very very different price from what you paid mid February. Yeah. And we haven't seen funds really locking up yet, so that I mean, they, I guess what I'm saying they are, they are. So if you try to put a, if you try to put a, a a sell notice in today for your for your uh, you know your, your high risk government fund fund that you, you bought a few years ago, um, you're not going to be able to sell it. I'm guessing. Well, that depends, and it's going to be mm. very much fund by fund, and it gets very interesting from this point onwards. Mm. Uh, so there was an article in the AFR yesterday about one of the funds move from I think 15 bips to. 1.7% uh, 
and that's the sell spread. So if you want to get out, yeah, they say, well, let's that say was, that was Vanguard, I think. Yeah, it was Vanguard. Yeah, so yeah. if the unit price Which is, is just for anyone who's not aware, they're like trillions of dollars under management. They're like mm. one of the world's biggest. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So if if you said that the unit was worth a dollar and you ring up to sell, they say, well, we apply the sell spread and you get uh, 98.2 cents. Mm. So that's the penalty you have to pay to get out on a fund like that. Now, for the sorts of funds uh, and the sorts of you know alternative credit assets that I deal with, mm. um, for people who have open-ended bond funds, uh, you know, one of the traders just sent out an update this morning, and they're saying, you know, assets that might be marked at, you know, a couple of percentage loss relative to you know month end, they're seeing those trade at eight to twenty percent below that. Wow. So the gap between where the marks are at the moment mm. and where they will be when you get the full flow through of where things are in very limited size trading mm. uh, is very substantial at the moment. Yeah. And just put that in context for people who are, who are listening in again. So if, if, if let's say there's a, a, a government, sorry, a, a, a corporate bond that's high yield and last trade of it, whatever, last trade of that 98 dollars to you know with a hundred dollar face value and now somebody's offering to buy it for eighty dollars and somebody's offering to sell it for eighty two it's still in the books at ninety eight because that was the last time it traded mm. nobody's actually traded it now and it's probably for that eighty to eighty two is probably a, a very narrow it's probably eighty to ninety or something is it or sixty that, to that would 90. be a functioning market eighty to eighty two and, and yeah. we're a fair way away from that yeah um so in short, uh, I, and I wrote a quick article on this on the weekend, and it's up on Livewire uh, if people want to have a quick read. Um, I think unless things improve very, very quickly from here, which which would be unusual, these things generally take months to years to resolve, hmm. uh, I think once the marks come through, is going to be big, substantial movements in unit prices for funds. Um, and that this applies very broadly. So I'm talking about credit funds, but if you have unlisted property, unlisted infrastructure, private equity holdings, all of those things will have moved a lot. Um, mm. You look at the listed equivalents, maybe they're down 10, 20, 30, whatever percent. Um, there's no reason that the unlisted equivalents shouldn't have moved a similar amount if you're doing well, a... And probably more. Yeah, yeah. if you're doing a mark-to-market. Mm. But it really comes down to every fund doing a fair mark-to-market on all of their assets and putting that out there and then what is the response from the investors. Mm. Um, the more you delay, the more you have people redeeming from the funds at the old price and the people who stay around uh, are getting hit with a bigger loss mm. that should have been allocated to the person who was leaving. Yeah, mm. um, and, and I've, I've been making the point, I've, I've got half written an article for, for this along the same bit, is that the super funds, like this applies to people's super funds. And there's a lot of super funds out of there with a lot of unlisted assets. And so if you're selling, if you're in your super fund today, selling your, selling out of your growth fund and into something else, then you get to sell out at the $98 and they know. Last year's price. Yeah. <laughs> they know it's $80, you know, $80 bid. Yep. You're, you get to sell at 98 because it hasn't been a trade. Beautiful. And so, if, and, if, and if they start marking that down, they're going to mark their entire book down. Mm, and so, that's right. yeah. yeah. Is that, is that what, I guess, is, am I right in characterizing it that way? It, it, it really comes down to every fund doing the mm. right thing and going through their books and marking fairly. If you've yeah. got an open-ended structure where people come in and come out, mm. the obligation is on you to have fair marks mm. and that the people who leave aren't front-running essentially. Yep. Mm. You, you can't allow that to happen. But 
I know from the, I was managing open-ended funds going into the financial crisis last time. And I know all of the problems that come up. The difference this time is that what took 15 months, 14 months last time to play out mm. has played out in a month. Yep. Mm. yep. Uh, and so I, I just don't know how long till the marks will be accurate. Um, and and that, that creates a whole wave of issue for mm. people who are running open-ended funds. Yeah. And, and so what do you think that is? Like obviously it's you know, two completely different um, derived crises. Um, but you know, is it just the fact that there's just been a complete vaporization of confidence in a, in a global respect as opposed to a financial crisis where you're just waiting for you know, central banks to kick in and support you know, finance assets? And like, you know, what, what are your thoughts on why it's 15 times faster? Yeah. <laughs> That's remarkable. Yeah, it is, it is. Um, <laughs> So I think there's a couple of points to make. People might talk this talk about this. Is this you know the second financial crisis, or is this really the second phase of the first financial crisis? Right. Um, so yeah. if I sort of start back, you know, twelve years ago, and we think about that, what happened? Like, so your standard Keynesian economics says, um, in the good times, the central banks drop the interest rate, they provide liquidity. And the government provides stimulus, uh, i.e. handouts, bailouts, whatever it is. And so those things happen to try and spur the economy along. And you do that for maybe a year or two years. So by the time you get to 2011, maybe 2010, you, you pull all that back and you go back to normal and you let markets kind of operate as normal. We never did that. On a global basis, we never did that. And so we've had this continual flow of sugar hit you know, throughout the world where central banks just keep saying, oh, the jobless rate isn't low enough, the growth isn't fast enough, we've got to cut interest rates to try and spur it on. Yeah. And so one of the big things that's different this time is that when there's been announcements by central banks, people have gone, is that all? Right. And it's, yes, of course, that's all. It's, it's pretty obvious. If your interest rates are 1%, what are you going to do? Mm, yeah. Christine Lagarde, you know, head of the ECB, people were pouring hot water on her saying, you know, she should have done more. It's negative half a percent interest rate from the central bank. What do you expect could happen or mm. should happen? Yeah. Do you want to punish people down to negative 2%? You know, what response is there meant to be? The US government is running a before stimulus now, before they go into a wave of stimulus, about a 5% GDP deficit every year. That's the government spending to try and spur the economy. If that's what you've got going into a crisis, <laughs> How do you spur more? Yeah, okay. you, you know, you've got to run 10, 15% mm. of GDP as stimulus. And if you do, do people say, hey, hang on, can they ever pay these bonds back? Mm. You know, yeah. what level of debt to GDP oh. do countries go broke? If, well, if you own a printing press, yeah. <laughs> whatever level you want, isn't it? Well, that's, that's true until inflation kicks in. Yes. Yeah. So I'll give you a massive contrarian point mm. at this stage of the crisis. The Aussie dollar is getting absolutely smashed. Mm. Right? That's, that's very obvious. What if people around the world start looking at all the different currencies and the governments and they say, where do we want to invest? Who do we think is actually going to restructure their economy and is going to move out of this in, you know, maybe it's two or three years, but who's going to get out of this and the government will keep paying their debts? And who's going to keep printing money? The answer to that question might be countries like Canada, Australia, New Zealand, Switzerland, 
Mm. And people say, well, that's, that's where I want to put my money because I'm not sure if the US government can service its debts without printing money. And if it does print money, maybe its currency falls a lot. Mm. Um, certainly Europe. I mean, how many Italian government bonds and Greek government bonds do you want to buy before you own the market? <laughs> and you own the market in a debt that almost certainly is likely to default at some point. Mm. So those are the sorts of things that really get scary for people when they think that through and say, where do we go from here? And, and the stimulus is almost exhausted at the beginning of the crisis. Mm. I think that's, that's part of the reason why it's been so much faster this time. You know, you had healthy economies, you had uh, higher interest rates, you had governments running balanced budgets going into 2007, 2008. So there was room to work with it. Mm. Now people look at it and say, actually, where do we go from here? Where's the help coming from? Mm. We already just, yeah, as you said, the US already just did a massive you know, tax cut for everyone, stimulus, get get everything trying to juice it to higher levels. And we've that's one I've, I've been trotting out for a bit as well is, you know, the Australian government keeps on um, trying to keep the house house prices at a high level, and so we've rolled out all these policies to try and keep the house prices at a high level. And now you've got a now you've got a crisis. All the good policies are all well, not even they're, they weren't even that good. But yeah, <laughs> the, the semi-average <laughs> policies are all done. We've only got bad ones left, yeah. Yeah. and that's what they're going to. Yeah, and and no bullets left in the gun. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Fantastic. Um, and so, look, you mentioned there a contrarian view. I'd be interested to know. Um, I guess you know, and this is probably crossing a massive chasm at the moment, but. Is there, um, and this is following on, I guess, with that point, what will clear them? But like, you know, what's, what's you know, is there a silver bullet or is it time or is it, you know, we're just going to have to, is there, the whole world going to have to pick itself up of its, you know, of, of its, out of its social isolation to, to rebuild itself in order to, to see some green shoots in, in well, those lower you, credit you markets? Go, you go first, but I've got, a, I've got some thoughts on that yeah, one as yeah, well. Yeah, no, no, yeah. absolutely. I'd love to hear them. Well, in the short term, the coronavirus dominates the, the view of what's going to happen. So clearly, whole swathes of the economy have shut down and, and people are at home. So until you clear that, um, that's a massive headwind to anyone thinking about investing in pretty much any asset class. So time helps that. Obviously, a vaccine would, would greatly help. Um, and, and I guess just on the coronavirus, whilst not certainly not coming into this with any substantial medical experience, there's always the economic versus medical trade-off. And so doctors rightly say, if you let it spread, if you go for the herd immunity uh, strategy, we will be flooded. And, you know, in Italy, they've got people in tents and and that's how they're dealing with it because there's just so many people needing help. So that, that would happen if you let it go. The flip side of that on a sort of just cold economic strategy is if you let it run and it goes through the economy, um, in a couple of months' time, people have either had it or they sheltered and they didn't get it, but there's probably enough herd immunity to come out and start operating normally again. Mm. And, and, and arguably, uh, I mean, your, your work fa- workforce participation rate may well increase significantly because a lot of the people who, who, who do die aren't even in the workforce. <laughs> and so that's, that's really sudden. Just, yeah, yeah, be yeah. A cold, the cold economic part of it is that there's a... Yeah. No, that makes sense. Yeah, but, right. yeah. you know, I'm not saying that's no, the right thing to do, but, not. you know, if that's where you end up in, mm. as you said, you know, there's, there is a, if you were an, a, an extreme economic rationalist, you would say, right, I can either take lots of pain for um, lots of months and have all these shutdowns in my economy and all that type of stuff and save lots of lives, mm. or I can just kill a bunch of old people that weren't really doing that much anyway for the economy and, and then we'll be off and running in, you know, in two months time. And you say, well, we don't want to do that, yeah. but... 
you're, you know, it's a there's some there's some countries that almost seem like they're doing that by default. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's a great point. And I guess we'll just sort of and, and bringing it back into um, the realm that you you operate in without going and losing too many current listeners. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I'll, I'll stop that line of question. But mm. I guess um, you know, look, obviously, share markets are in turmoil at the moment, and that's got you know you're on two sides of the coin there. So you're either you're losing money and it's a really rough time, or thankfully, you know, a lot of our investors I've been speaking to are sitting on the other side, going, "When do I give you more money?" Now, mm. is that going to happen? in alternative debt so obviously you know there's going to be a big clean out price is going to fall is that then an opportunity um for you know the work that you do to say well look up you know what, what, go, what goes through your mind is there a process in saying okay well maybe we can dip our toes back in at some point obviously not now but yeah well it, it goes back to the genesis of narrow road capital in 2012 and that was at that time there was still a few bargains left that you could get cheap there was still some distressed debt um, where you could look at it and say, actually, there's very little risk of it getting much worse. But if I hold for three to five years, I'll get a fantastic return. More than you'd expect, you know, from vanilla equities, yep. for instance, over the same sort of period. So that was the, the genesis of the business. And the strategy that's really been implemented, particularly over the last 18 months, is it just felt like we were getting closer and closer to the point where it would crack. And so the response to that was, you can't go to cash because clients pay me to invest mm, okay. the money. Um, and they, they will say, oh, yeah, I'll take it back and I'll go to cash if that's what they want to do. So I'm looking after a portion of them and it's my obligation to invest it. But it's also my obligation to make sure they don't get belted mm. when things get worse. Yep. So how do you do that? Well, the, the mantra I've been preaching for the last you know, year, two years was stay short, stay senior. Mm. So things that mature quickly and things that are at the top of the capital structure, so if it gets worse, you're the last one to take a you hit. the protection, yep. So basically what happens now is the portfolios go into a state of typically you know, minor wind down. Um, fairly quickly, the cash comes back. There's a lot of short dated securities. Uh, and then we start having the discussion with clients about, we've been talking about for three years, five years, that another distress cycle would come. It has come. How comfortable are you? Are you ready to go? Mm. And and the strategy always as a business model was that you have to make sure that the clients are feeling comfortable in the bad times um, such that they're having confidence in you to put more money to work. Mm. And the best way to do that is to say, hey, you've got all this money coming back and maturing. Do you want to go for the bargains? Do you want to hold some back? But there are bargains. We told you there'd be bargains. Are you ready to go now? So really that's the strategy at play at the moment. Um, so I talked about open-ended funds earlier. One of the business decisions I made after learning lessons from the financial crisis was don't run open-ended funds. Okay. Don't yeah. allow people to come in and, and go out because you know when the crisis strikes, you'll get hit with a wave of redemptions. And if you're dealing with illiquid securities, as a fair chunk of the things I, I look after are, mm -hmm. There's just no way to meet it. Yeah, and yeah. so and just to clarify, that's don't don't run open funds in illiquid um, assets, assets, assets yeah. whereas whereas we do we deal purely in the liquid stuff. Highly liquid stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah so, fair enough. Which yeah. is why we have a different model, obviously. Yep, good point. Yep, sure. Um, and so in terms, of, I mean, this is an interesting point. It's uh, you know the, the the listed income trust and the lick sector, mm. uh, you know, is taking a, a lot of negative criticism, but structurally they're correct. Mm. They've taken things that are liquid, they've put them in a structure where if you want liquidity, you can go on and sell 60, 70, 80% of NAV. Yep. Or you can sit there and you can keep getting, if they're good managers, good returns. 
and over two to five years it'll go back to normal yeah. but you're not forced into a shutdown situation because other investors have run for the exit mm. Yeah, yeah, interesting. Yeah, it's yeah, fun. and so and so I think yeah, the main points on that one is so is that everything's got a, everything's got its right structure, and that's what I sort of go. There's, and it's not even everything's got its right structure. Most things have a wrong structure. So you sort of say you can you can put things in an, into an exchange traded fund where things units trade in and out every day. Um, you can buy a um, an open ended um, trust uh, unit trust where your money sits in the pool with everyone else's money and people trade in and out um, pretty much every day. Uh, some some of them trade you know, monthly or something like that. Um, you can put things into a separately managed account, like we do here, where everyone owns their own securities. And you know, if you want to trade, it's your it's your tax, it's your trading thing. So people only affect their own things, not not others. Um, and they work, and those ones sort of work well for for liquid things. And then you get the illiquid ones, where you're like, okay, now, yeah, as you said, you you want to make sure that other investors aren't aren't affecting, you, and that's where for a, for a listed investment trust, that makes sense for those. Whereas it doesn't make as much sense for some other assets. Is that yeah, I, I think that's correct. Um, anytime you put illiquid assets in an open-ended structure, you're setting yourself up for disaster. Mm-hmm. And and we just know, you know, roughly every ten years, something really bad happens, and people run for the exit. So, for me as a fund manager, I'm just not willing to put things in an improper structure mm. because mm. I've been through that before. I know how it works. It's it's awful at the time you want to be talking to people saying there's, there's bargains. Do you yep. want to take advantage? You're talking to people in the fund saying, look, it will get better. Just hang around. And the reality is a good portion of your investors, when they have that discussion with you or even without having the discussion at all, will opt for the exit. And this, it's the options are taken away from you. You just don't have good choices. You, mm. You're constantly on the defensive. You're constantly trying to hold it together when you always wanted to be on the other side of that. Mm-hmm. And, and I guess that's that's why my business exists. That's why my business has the structure it does. Yeah. So people can come in and say, hey, I hear there are bargains. I'm ready to go. Yep. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well put. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I, um, this, this is slightly off topic, but it's sort of that question. Uh, it's, I think it's, it'll be interesting to see your thoughts now is um, – before we were doing this, uh, there, was a, there was another podcast I was listening to that popped up and talking about um, peer-to-peer marketplace lending. And this is this whole idea about liquidity is going, well, you know, this is, you, you get up these illiquid funds, but if you can get this peer-to-peer marketplace lending going, then that actually increases liquidity in the sector and, and can mean that you can value things a bit more close to, you know, people can meet a bit closer in the middle. There's not a bigger, bigger bridge to grab. Uh, how do you think those guys are going to go and are... Um, in, in these scenarios, <laughs> what's an example of a peer to peer? So basically, you lend directly to people. So it ah, happens okay. like uh, it's in the um, it happens a bit in the Australian market in in housing, where mm-hmm. uh, it's a big player that does uh, Lonsdale. Lonsdale? Uh, well, Latrobe. Latrobe. Sorry. Yep. That's the other street. Yes. <laughs> uh, Latrobe, who do the uh, who 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 let people so basically lend to a particular house or, or whatever it is and charge particular rates. So it's sort of like. It's basically your microfinance in a way for the yeah, yeah, effectively, for but yeah, but yeah. there's um, there are ones popping up that are trying to do peer to peer lending marketplaces for for debt side. So, wow! So okay. that's where you get. So yeah. yeah, I'll toss that back to you. Is yeah, how, how much would you love to have some some peer to peer stuff? Well, I, I'm I'm invested in it, um, mm. and the key thing about that sector is you get to look through. Uh, sorry, as an institutional mm. investor, you get to look through and say, what am I actually getting? So, for instance, a property, you get to see the valuation. You get to see the story of why is this person borrowing. 
that's that's what I thrive on is on actually doing credit work mm. and making a call. Not is this a good brand name, mm. and you know the brand names are often very good and the infrastructure is very good. In many cases, the infrastructure is better than the banks, the big four banks. Mm. And I say that having worked for big four banks and knowing how they make home loans and how non-banks make home loans. And contrary to the opinion that's put out there regularly by one of my peers, um, the non-banks have been better credit assessors than the major banks on a like-for-like basis. Mm. Um, And you see that in the arrears data that's put out. But, But they're getting the worst quality loans. Is that what you're saying? That is a substantially um, misleading story that gets told. Right, okay. So there's actually two groups. Mm. So that that point is half correct, half incorrect, but people put it out there Mm. and really muddy the waters. So if you look at the big non-bank lenders in Australia, groups like uh, FirstMac, ResiMac, Mm. et cetera, who focus on the prime space, their arrears are amongst the lowest and are lower than the major banks when you look at their securitization, their, their term out issuance, their residential mortgage-backed securities, their arrears are lower than the major banks. I'm sorry, Jonathan, just for the listeners, um, the prime space being full, like full documentation. F- full documentation, yeah. um, wage earners who can turn up with a pay slip yeah. um, kind of story. Okay. Um, now, for people like us who work for small businesses that and, and you know, uh, are owners of businesses, yeah that becomes problematic. And so we don't necessarily get to fall into that prime space. They may say, oh, look, you're a business owner. Well, we're valuing your credit risk based on what's the business that employs you. Mm. So that's where you get in the space that people call it non-conforming. The people who, who want to write a, you know, often false story and mislead people will call it subprime. Um, but there's a very big difference between subprime that people think of for um, what happened in the US in 2006 through to 2008. And if you've seen the big short, you know, it literally was lending to people who had no incomes, no jobs, mm. no assets. And what we have in Australia, which is called non-conforming, where it could just be a small business owner. And the big four banks simply cannot be bothered doing the basic credit work to assess whether they're a good risk or not. Through to, at the far end, people who've previously been bankrupts. Mm. Um, so that space, the non-conforming space, the areas are higher than the major banks. The big flip side to that is the LVRs are typically lower. So the amount you lend against the value of the property is lower. Mm -hmm. The less you lend compared to the value of the property, the less risk you are taking as a lender. So if a major bank lends 95% of the value of the property and a non-bank lends 65, I take the 65 loan every day of the week. It's it's far less risky in terms of the possibility of you actually losing a dollar of principal Mm -hmm. or your interest. The flip side is though, not only is it less risky, but typically those loans attract a much higher interest rate. So less risk, higher return. Good for that, investors. That's, that's what investors should be looking for. And so these are the parts of the credit markets that are uh, under-researched, under-invested in, and there's opportunities to take advantage. Yeah. If you know what you're doing. And that's the tricky part. Yeah. That's the really tricky part is you know, I've been lending money and getting it back for oh, it's nearly 20 years now. Mm. That's a that's a long time to learn a skill set. Mm. Um, and in the same way, uh, you know, mums and dads they they see the news, they read the newspaper and think, oh, I can buy some shares. I've got a view. If you're lucky, you'll get the average. You'll get you know effectively the outcome of the index. 
if you're unlucky, you'll get picked off by people that are smarter than you. Mm. Now, you, you may be very well, lucky. And it might be people who are not even smarter than you, but they're doing it full-time while you're at work full-time. So, correct, yeah. correct. Yeah. So some of the platforms, you know, they'll let anybody go on and, and make a call. Um, some of those platforms, the things that sell quickest are the things that have the highest interest rates. Um, I guess I'd turn that round and say the things I would typically target are the things with the lowest risk. Yep. And the interest rate is good and I don't need to and haven't needed to chase risk. Mm. Um, but, but today is a day as well that, that it, comes to, it comes time to roost, isn't it? For the, it last, for the last 10 years, um, you've been able to buy the highest risk and sorry the, the highest risk the, yeah well the highest risk the highest risk and, and, and the highest return and not care because you go well I've still got my you know I, I got an 8% interest rate rather than your paltry 7% interest rate and, and you're like yeah but you took on so much risk and you're like yeah but I still got my 8% and I got my money back so who cares whereas today is the day when they wake up and go oh that extra half percent worth of interest or 1% worth of interest <laughs> cost me my capital cost me yeah that's right <laughs> yeah and that 1% to 2% difference in interest rate in the current environment we'll go back to a month ago everything's changed but mm. a month ago you would have said that's the difference between a really boring home loan to a really boring person mm. uh, who has a low LVR mm. and to get with, with the lower interest rate uh, and then on the flip side you've got construction lending mm. so that extra 2% is because a developer has borrowed the money they knock down the house they're putting up six townhouses or maybe they're putting up an apartment tower but as a general rule in construction, the higher you go, the more risk there is. Mm -hmm. um, you start digging underground and you find there's asbestos, you find that there's telephone cables and utility cables and mm -hmm. all these things you didn't expect, the costs blow out. Um, construction carries a lot of risk. Mm. And so the peer-to-peer -peer construction debt, in my view, has, has not paid sufficiently in the last year, year and a half. Yeah, because uh, typically you'd expect, what, 15 to 25% is the ballpark, isn't it, on those construction risks that you'd want to be getting as a... As oh, yeah, I think senior, if we go back to... So what happened in about 2017, 2018, there was a big wave of funds that mm. started raising money and lending in that space after the banks pulled back. Yeah. And so there was a gap there for a while where senior lending was probably 12 to 15 and MES was 15 to 25. Yep. Uh, MES name being the subordinate, sorry, the subordinated debt in the structure. So the f basically the first people to lose money if something goes wrong. Well, equity well, first, then, 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 the, then mezzanine. the mezzanine. But yeah, yeah, yeah if sorry, it really goes bad, the mezzanine can get wiped out kind, yeah. of, kind of situation. What happened over the last, probably the last 12 months is we probably saw spreads more at, you know, 8, 9% investors were getting for the... Yeah for the senior and, and you know mares was maybe 15 perhaps even less and so the spreads really compressed there mm. um, the more boring stuff spreads didn't really move that much they just followed the rba rate cuts down um, and that's classic late cycle behavior mm. as a credit manager you see it happening that the later you get in the credit cycle the less the gap for the additional risk mm. so yeah. even things like the gap between say a triple b investment grade and a double b high yield bond it really clamped down and of course in the last three four weeks it's just blown out again yeah. mm. that's classic credit cycle people chase yield they'll take extra risk for a tiny bit of additional interest yep and then we have the crunch and it just blows out again mm. yeah. okay um, uh, the sectors in Australia, what, what sectors do you cover? And do you mind just reflecting a little bit on that and how that's been going over the last um, the yeah. while since we've spoken? Last two days. Yeah, yes. last two days and then maybe <laughs> back from there. Yeah. So Any, Anything else before that we don't care about because it's no longer important. <laughs> yeah, that's right. It's sure, sure. Well, I, I might take the opportunity to, to you know, as, as all fund managers tend to do, to 
talk about my winners uh, and I'm happy for you to ask about the losers, but I'll talk about a few winners. So back in September, I wrote an article that was entitled something like the dumb money is buying hybrids. And basically I compared a bunch of the, the listed bank hybrids with AAA RMBS. Hmm. And I said, what sort of moron, effectively, what sort of moron would buy a bank hybrid when you get AAA RMBS that's paying you the same? That's how residential backed mortgage security is yeah. well for those. Yeah. Yeah. And, and depending on how you calculate it, the, the difference in risk is that the hybrids are between maybe 50, perhaps more times riskier than the AAA RMBS, depending how you calculate it. Could be forty nine, maybe forty eight. If you could could be seventy or eighty. It depends how you calculate it. Yeah. So to me, two things paying the same return. One with a massive, massive amount more risk. Clearly, hmm. you you buy the one that's lower risk. Yeah. But um, but, I, but you could buy the other one on the on the stock market nice and easily through your that's broker. Right. Well, that's, that's true. Yeah, access. Yeah, it's, yeah, that's yeah, true. Yeah, access. And that, that's the problem is that yeah. you know a retail market prices very differently from an institutional market. Hmm. So. Um, Anyway, that trade's working out pretty well so far. So triple RMBS, I mean, the one I quoted back then was bank bills plus 195. I mean, it's a good guess where it's trading at the moment, but maybe it's bank bills plus 200, maybe it's 250, um, maybe it's 300 at worst. But the hybrids, you know, the hybrids are probably trading at bank bills plus 600 or thereabouts mm. so ones ones may be flat or down maybe one at most two percent and mm. the hybrids are down 10 12 percent wow yeah. yeah so that's that's the difference yeah. you know when spreads blow out and people recognize one part of the capital structure is much better than the other mm. prices move very quickly yeah and that's the one we've been banging on for ages about the you know the average broker or financial planner who's trying to run some portfolios and they 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 go right you know Thanks for your thanks for your money, uh, you know, widow or orphan. I'm going to put a bunch of money in stocks, and I'm going to put the rest in fixed interest, which is actually I'm just going to put into hybrids. And you're like, that's not fixed interest. That's correct. <laughs> it's actually flo- most of a floating rate, and it's and this is what happens when when the when the markets panic. Yeah, they didn't. You know, the, the rest of the market's off thirty, and they're only down twelve. Oh, yeah. But they're still down a long way, mm. whereas your bonds are, are, are basically up on, on most of your yeah. Yep. Not in the last couple of days, but we'll get back to those. We'll move to those later. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And, and I guess a, another comment on the hybrid sector, again, you know, talking talking my previous articles up, but in November when the, the Virgin Notes came out, I, I wrote an article basically saying this is crazy, um, you know, 8% interest rate, you're just not getting paid for the risk. Well, they've gone from 100 to 45. Mm. And I think now it's it's really questionable whether Virgin makes it through. So it's $100, um, there's, the coup, there's the base value and they've dropped to 45 each. So Correct. Okay. Yeah, Correct. So, I mean, and, and you're getting 8% yield. So you picked up, yeah. over, over your bank account, you picked up a nice tidy for six months worth of well, 6% extra yield for a, a 60%. Yeah, drop, drop in your capital. Yeah. Well, there's actually a step further on that calculation, which is the interest is due in May. It's a $4 right. interest payment. Right. At this point, given all the things that we don't know about how their business was performing, yeah. it might be a 50-50 call that they actually pay that pay interest. Yeah, right. So, you know, you might not even get to the first interest payment. That's, right. that's uh, <laughs> yeah. everything, almost yeah. everything is going against Virgin at the moment. So mm. you, you look, for instance, at mm. the one good thing is the government said, right, we'll drop some of the charges. So mm. that takes a cost line out. But as very rough and dirty calc the other day, their business costs are $16 million a day. Yep. Mm. They've put forward that they've got something like a billion dollars worth of liquidity. 
how much of that is cash and how much of that is, for instance, bank overdrafts, I don't know. Mm. If they put in a request to draw a bank overdraft at the moment, would they actually get, get approved? <laughs> I don't know. Um, typically with Australian corporates, there's a requirement when you go to the bank and ask for drawing on your facilities, you have to sign off that you're in the shape that you you're were. You're going concerned. That's yeah. right. Yeah, when they put it in place. Yeah, that makes sense. So if it's an Australian form of overdraft and you put that request in, the bank will be asking a lot of questions and they, they may not pay it. Um, you may not even be able to put the request in because it would re require you to lie about the financial state of the business. Mm. There's a whole bunch of things I don't know. You can't read the agreements. They're not public. You just don't know. Yeah. But you if, certainly think from the bank's end anyway, they'll be looking for any excuse to say, oh, sorry, forgot to cross that T. Any technicality mm. would be an out, but yeah. typically the way they're structured is it requires you to say, well, we're performing in line with the, the forecast we've given you and within the ratios right. that we've agreed to. And uh, your ratios are terrible at the moment. You, yeah. you know, it's, it's a business that's long lost money and, and it's going to lose a heck of a lot of money now. Yeah, so you're telling us, so Jonathan, we're filming this in Melbourne and Jonathan's come for a visit to, to see some clients and drop in and see us at the same time and see he's got a, he's got a story about the, uh, the planes. Can you tell us your... Uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, flight, yeah. Would you be buying any you know, Tiger bonds at the moment? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I came down on a Tiger flight. Always love a bargain. And uh, I, I asked the lady I was getting on board. You know, how are things going for you guys? Uh, you know, what's the flight like like today? And she said, Well, we had 165 seats sold on a 180 seat plane. So that's pretty good. That's a pretty good uh, ratio. Um, but 50 of those have cancelled. So there's only 115 people coming on board. But the second thing she told me was far worse, and that's we were all given notice this morning that in five weeks' time our work ends will be made redundant. Yeah. And this, the, apparently the, the Sydney and Brisbane bases from Tiger are, are closing and the staff are all going and the Melbourne base continues to operate. Um, you know, Virgin announced that all the international flights are, are shut uh, and 50% of the domestic's gone. I think Qantas was 60% of domestic's gone. Mm -hmm. That brings on a whole bunch of issues for that for that business, both Virgin and Qantas, but Virgin's in a far worse situation because the cash flow burn is going to be enormous. Yep. So if you think about an airline, people buy tickets you know, a month, three, six months in advance, and the airline, if you pay on your, your credit card, the airline collects that money, holds it, and then effectively spends it when you get on. So what's going to happen is the number of seats they've forward sold is absolutely collapsing. Yep. So that forward cash flow that they have is, is draining very, very rapidly. Mm. Uh, when people get told, oh, your international flight's been cancelled, they usually have an option, do you want a credit or do you want a refund? Mm. The smart ones will take a refund. Uh, at, moment, at a moment, I think they've. They're, I think my brother was saying he's, he's only being offered a credit on some of the stuff he'd he'd, he'd, he'd done. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. if your flight's been cancelled, I'm pretty sure the ACCC would say you're entitled to a refund. Ask yeah. them, not me. But I'm pretty sure that's general consumer law. If mm. they've canned you, yeah, they've got to give you the money back. Um, and if you take the money back again, those people are all getting money back. That's cash flow drain. Mm. Um, some other things that happen are things like the credit card companies. Uh, when they see airlines and retailers in trouble, they start looking at the forward bookings and they start looking at how much they've paid the airlines effectively ahead of time. And they know if the airline goes down, there'll be a bunch of chargebacks. Yeah. So they start holding back money. So that's another cash flow drain. Right. You've got the redundancy payments. They're coming through. And things like um, you know, the interest payments on the debt you've got, uh, the, the lease payments on the aircraft, they're not going anywhere. Mm. You're stuck with those. So there's a whole bunch of costs that are fairly fixed. Mm. There's some that are variable. 
But even cutting the variable ones, like letting staff go, comes with a redundancy payment, which is a big cash outflow immediately. Yep. The, the pressure on their cash flows at the moment would be enormous. And I guess where you get to with that is, it wouldn't surprise me if in the next couple of months we start hearing the lawyers and the accountants are in there providing advice. And then once you hear that, you know, all the suppliers start saying, well, you need to pay me cash on delivery. <laughs> That's um, right. So zero, that, zero day invoicing. <laughs> correct. So that starts and that furthers the cash crunch. Mm. Yeah. And then you get to a point where they just say, look, we need to go insolvent. Mm. Um, and, and realistically, that's the best thing for that, that, this airline at, at this point mm. is they need someone to come through with an axe and, and just chop large parts of the business away to make very cold calculating decisions about which routes they can make money on, which routes have to go, can they negotiate a better deal with you know, the leasing of the planes, with staff, with suppliers and get the cost down. Mm. And can they ultimately get themselves in a position where maybe they have a cost base like Tiger, but they have a service level something like Quant- uh, sorry, a cost level like uh, Jetstar, mm. but a service level like Qantas, and then they've got an ongoing viable business that people want to fly on. Mm. So I, th- I don't think the overseas shareholders will, will step up for that one. I think they're all looking at pain right across their existing operations. So to come in with more yeah. is very unlikely. Some of the shareholders are like HNA, the Chinese one, they're, they're broke as mm. is now. They've been bailed out by the Chinese government. Mm. So those are the... And there's also a lot of... Um, it's interesting though in that market, the same type of thing is that sort of that Phoenix idea, isn't it? That when when things arise in that market and they probably will be slow to come back but there's probably a bunch of like there's a lot of middle east com- companies um plane companies obviously that are very heavily government backed and you sort of have to be think that given all the, the the dramatic fall in oil prices then they're going to be um a little bit slower to uh to, yeah, yeah. to, to resume composition once the whole thing once it starts so it's a, yeah probably one of those classic cases of going you just want to f- you don't want to be buying now but you want to be working out now, okay. Who are the if, winners? Who, if yeah. these ones survive to this stage, that's when I'm actually interested in it because that, and whatever the catalyst are for then saying, right, okay, now I can actually see that there, there is a future to. Absolutely. And I think that, I think there is a future to, to international travel. I believe that's. <laughs> yes. <laughs> My wife believes like, that. Flying anyway. on planes <laughs> is, yeah, is not, it's not something we will, we will stop doing forever. Yep. But it's a question of we're working out, if, especially anyone who's got debt. You know, how long before they fall over and then of the ones that don't have debt or which ones haven't which ones have kept enough of their business that when things pick back up again it's not like they're you know yeah it's me, my, it's me and my brother flying the plane yeah you know, we can fit 80 people on you know and that's it yeah so yeah. No, so that's obviously a, that's a pretty good bear case in in you know the current situation and how it's infecting um that that sort of sector is there any green is there any green in in any of the sectors in australia right now so like you know, we've got, you know, anecdotally, I think Coles have done eight or nine or 10 weeks worth of uh, revenue in a, in a week. And I know that because I can't, at the moment, I can't give them any money because they've got nothing to sell me at my local Coles. Um, but, you know, is there, is, you know, in that corporate debt space, is, is there actually anything, is there a go-to um, that people are looking at and going, okay, net beneficiary or, you know, at least not as, you know, not completely, um, you know, going to blow up, you know, is there, is there a safer sector than airlines perhaps <laughs> yeah certainly the airlines are the, the tail end they're the highest risk but the lower risk end yeah it's it's things like supermarkets and, and i guess the story for supermarkets going forward is, is pretty simple i think some people once they've gotten a taste of being at home for a while cooking their own food and, and figuring out for some people they've never really figured out how to cook and they'll figure that out they'll watch a few youtube videos and they'll get there 
they'll start thinking, hang on, I used to go and drop $20, $40 on a, on a meal and I can cook this at home for three bucks or five bucks. Uh, why don't I do this a bit more? So I think the case might be there at least for a couple of years, mm. particularly if there's an economic downturn that people you know, will buy more from a supermarket and will spend less outside. Yep. Um, so there are cases like that. But I mean, the funny thing is when you look through the Australian economy, it's so much easier to see the ones that get belted, mm. the mining companies. So the, the falling currency is a great help to them. But if China doesn't do a massive stimulus, surely they've got to stop building infrastructure, surely that the rapid growth they've had ends, mm. in which case the demand for iron ore falls away quite a lot. Mm. Um, anything related to energy is falling because the demand for energy usage is down. But the other thing on the, the uh, commodities is saying, we were going through this, and they asked China's the big thing, and you're like, yeah, China is the big thing, but there's also the rest of the world mm. that's coming to a sudden stop. And China, while it's very, very big in commodities, there are other countries that demand commodities. And if they've all come to a sudden stop, then it doesn't matter what China does. Yep. It's not spending more than if you've got a sudden stop right across Europe and, and the US. And, yeah, that's a good yeah. point. Yep. Yeah. I mean, so food commodities, that, yeah. that holds true. But something like iron ore, it is a growth story. It's based yeah. on growth. Mm. So you build train tracks, you build apartment towers, you need iron ore. The, the story that most people have never considered, which they've got to start thinking about now on, on China is... What if people stop moving to the city because there are no jobs there? What if mm. they stay in the country? Mm. Well, you don't well, keep building the apartment towers and the, and the transport infrastructure doesn't need to be extended that much further. And, and what if companies decide, you know what, I won't outsource my entire supply chain to China. Actually, I will actually remove my entire supply chain or remove, you know. Spread it out a little bit or something. Yeah, yeah. I'll go from China, China or China plus one as, as a lot of them do it to, you know what, I think I need like a... I need something in every continent now. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to go for five big factories around the world, and and so China will now be 20% rather than 100% of my production. Yep. Yeah. yeah, and we, we've certainly seen that already. Like the Vietnams, the Bangladeshes, and the, mm. have seen a lot of growth on the back of anywhere anywhere but China for my manufacturing in the last couple of years. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. No, well, that's yeah. So a common theme of ours is that yeah, China's. Uh, on a limited bit, um, yeah. Have we got? Uh, there's a there's a couple of questions through, but I just encourage anyone else to to, to some questions. So uh, we've got indicators for time, indicators and time horizon for the bottom of markets and housing. I think that's obviously a big one. I think the the, the housing market hasn't even topped yet, has it? It's still uh, <laughs> according to the latest stats we see, it's still still on its way up. So so let's see, let's jump to Australian housing because I've I've got a few things there. I've, I've been describing it as a, a wildly coyote moment where we've um, where the housing markets. Uh, you know, I spoke about the the stock market being there at, at um in at the start of February, basically saying yeah it's. It's it's running in midair and not not realizing there's no ground underneath it anymore, and then it's it's realized now. Mm. Uh, and the same question comes back to the housing market. Um, you know, I guess I'd my my view to, to, to preempt it and hopefully not lead it too much, but uh, is that uh, it doesn't matter how much stimulus you throw at it, doesn't matter how many first home buyer grants you put on, if unemployment rises, the housing market's going down. Yep. Uh, so so I'd, I'd say yeah, very similar to that. I'd characterize housing as a three-legged stool. Um, so the first, the first leg to that is employment. Um, if people have jobs and their incomes are rising, they can afford to pay more for housing. If people lose their jobs uh, and they're unemployed, you can't pay pretty much any mortgage. Once, mm. you, once your money runs out, once your reserves run out, once that prepayments that you've made on the mortgage uh, are eaten up with the interest accruing, mm. you've got to sell. And we haven't seen for selling 
on the eastern states for a long time, we did see it in Perth and we did see Perth get hammered when mm. that came through. Mm. So the first leg is employment. That leg's probably going to be kicked out reasonably hard. Well, over the next I mean, your story this, this morning was, yeah. I mean, and that's what I'm hearing. And sure, everyone's hearing that everywhere. It's just people about casuals, you know, all being laid off, people who are part-time, you know, hours cut back and just everything's just, you know, I think the employment situation is already on that path. Yeah. yeah. We just haven't seen the data yet for it. Mm. Correct. Correct. Uh, so that's that's the first leg. Um, the second leg is population growth. And this is the one that I'm probably least certain about in the sense that well, we've shut the borders. Mm. So you can't bring any more migrants in. Mm. You can't bring anybody in. So that will stop for a little while. The question then becomes, as we saw in the last crisis, the government said, oh, if we want to get GDP up, why don't we just bring more people in and then the economy gets larger so it looks like we're not having a recession when we were having a GDP per capita recession. Yep. Mm. Um, so that's been a story that's helped Australia stay out of recession for the last 10 years, but we may stop that. Yeah. There may well be the reverse case, which is actually we've got unemployment going up. Why don't we tell the big companies there's no more importing you know, medium and, and high skill staff how about you get some Australians to do that? And maybe that flows through into the lower skill areas. So for instance, fruit picking is one I've never understood. And, and maybe someone will email, after, email, email me this after the chat and tell me how it works. But we import um, effectively, uh, import for, for short periods of time, people from Pacific Islands and backpackers from let's say the UK to come and pick our fruit and our vegetables. We have very or, or higher rates of unemployment in, in regional and rural communities. Mm. Why aren't those people picking the fruit? I, I don't understand that. Well, I'll, I'll tell you very simply: this. people they say people don't want to. I've got, I've, I've got a few things, a few uh, relations to that. They, they, I think if you talk to the farmers, they'll say people don't want to do it, and the answer is actually people don't want to do it at the prices we're willing to pay. Is, right. the, is, yeah. the, is the full answer to that question. But, and, and, also, and so you've got to pay people more money. <laughs> and also they, they dovetail the, um, the visas into the work element as well. So yeah. they basically yeah, say... Yeah. A lot of them have to, have to go back. Yeah, yeah, yeah but it's, you, know, you can extend it by doing yeah. some fruit picking or something. Correct. So there's this, you know, there's this visa play as much as oh, really just a working play. That you'd almost work for free, but it means you, get, you, know, you can get your visa sorted for another you know, 12 months or whatever. And the other interesting part for that as well is um, post the financial crisis, uh, we we'd been through this big mining boom, and we'd already we were still building the um, uh, we're still building a bunch of uh, gas um, uh, what do you call them? LNG liquefaction liquefaction plants, and so there was actually already still a decent sized demand, and so uh, employment rates in Australia were actually a lot more attractive than elsewhere, hmm. and so people who were sitting in London going, well, just lost my job, um, oh. Australia's got low unemployment. I hear about this mining boom going on. Yeah, I'll go to I'll go yeah. to Australia and I'll, I'll go work there for a few years. Absolutely. Yeah. Whereas I think when if you if it's the other way around though, if it's like okay, yes, just lost done this in China, but Australia's actually only just going into winter now and still fighting off coronavirus because there's an extra winter thing and housing markets are crashing and oil is crashing. And there's actually no jobs there. Mm. Then you're less likely to pick up your backpack and say, yeah, let me let me go travel to Australia and find a new job there when. I know unemployment's yeah, rocking. Right. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's a good point. So, mm. so, so, okay, that was the second leg. Demographics is the second leg, and the third leg is the financial. So every time the RBA has cut, that's pushed house prices up. Yep. Uh, we've seen that over many, many years. And, and the RBA wrote about, their about own... About to see it about now, actually, is it? Yeah. Another hour's time or something? Yeah. The last well, one? And, and the RBA wrote their own paper, and I think their quantification was something like every 25 bips was 5 to 6% increase mm. in house prices. Yeah. 
Well, we've pretty much run out of that now. So there's not too many more cuts coming. We've got, as we've got an hour so. left, I believe. Right, right. So, and, and then the other part to the financial leg is, uh, are banks willing to land? And I, and I think it's early stages of, of what's probably another financial crisis, but we don't quite yet know whether they will continue to lend at the same rate or whether they'll become more conservative. If they sniff that you know, house prices might fall, it would make sense to cut off all lending at 90% LVR and above, for mm. instance, mm. is to just shut that down. Mm. And that obviously takes some marginal buyers out of the market. Mm. Some other marginal buyers have left because they don't have employment. Um, that could be a real turnaround. We've, we've the, brought, already brought forward as many as we can with first home buyer grants and all that type of stuff. So you yeah. sort of already, as we said, we spoke about those ones, you just brought forward demand. And so now you're like, oh, there's actually a big, there's actually a bit of a demand gap from all those people who have already been brought forward to. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Plus you've got a crashing um, share market. So people are got a, you know, sitting on yeah, a bit it's, of... it's interesting, the crashing share market, because I think there is a certain element of people who will go, that share market, way too risky. Let me just go back to houses because that's what I know. And I, yeah, okay. Yeah. Yeah. But, yeah. but the share market is an indicator. It's, it, there is a wealth effect. Mm. So the RBA talks about that. Yeah. There is a wealth effect. Your wealth goes down. There's a negative wealth effect as well. So they don't like to talk about that side so much. Mm. Um, but it's also an indicator of some of the higher end, higher skill jobs, higher income jobs, um, what's likely to lie ahead. So how much merger and acquisition work goes on in a downturn? Not so much. There's a lot of distressed work and turnaround work, but there's, you know, the law firms, the accountancy firms, they all get cutbacks from their big users of their services. And so the bonuses drop. Mm. Um, and the income for the people who earn, you know, 150 plus thousand dollars a year who can buy the million dollar plus houses, mm. that drops. So that starts to flow through as well. Absolutely. And, and, and having worked in that industry for a long time, I think as, as you have and I have, and is you know that there's a lot of people out there who um, probably, probably won't say they're all on the sales side, but I'm guessing on the sales side is probably more, more likely to be that case, but who basically uh, work their bonus into their calculations for what they can afford. So mm. it's along the lines of, I have a base of this, and I, I often get a 50 or 100% bonus on that, and so that's I will assume that, that I'm getting that 100% bonus. That's my borrowing limit. Exactly. So <laughs> I will push everything up to that limit, and so and then when, when it doesn't come through, it's like all of a sudden it's like, oh, oh really? What's, yeah. yeah. Th- those people yeah. Are, are really on the edge because, uh, you know, from, from industry experience, uh, those people um, are the ones who are quite likely to not just get a zero bonus, mm. but be having the discussion about, do I still have my job? Yep. Yes. And those are the ones. And, and, and no job to go to. If, yeah. So when they do leave, it'll be 6, 12, 24 months before the things stick up again and, and they can move into another job. Yeah. I mean, do, do, you have, do you have the humility to march yourself down to Coles and say, I oh, will stock shelves so I can pay the bills and feed the family until yeah. this mm. gets better? Well, yeah. The reality is for most of those people, though, it's... That's... Forget the humility. That's just not going to. That's going to cover you know one tenth of my monthly mortgage bill anyway. So it's not going to make a difference to them. Just have to shift the house. <laughs> yeah, I may as well save my save my pride and just go broke as opposed to work at Coles and still go broke anyway. Well, the, I mean, the first thing is probably things like the kids have got to get pulled out of private schools. Um, mm. You know, the luxury spending, the the holidays, the eating out's all got to go. But mm. yeah, at some point, yeah. Yeah, and that's and then there's a whole stream of other people who who obviously that's their that's their job is to, to provide services to these people and so. Yeah. Any uh, any last questions we've got on the um, thing there, Dan? Sorry? Oh, oh, sorry, on yeah. the thing. Yep. Uh, okay, so we've got. Um, 
Uh, look, there's a question about China building unoccupied cities for years. Will they just continue? I think there's a, there's a whole podcast topic on that. We'll, we'll come back to that one. Uh, uh, QE. So, okay. So, so we're so there's, it's likely that um, well, it's almost almost uh, almost it's definite that we're going to hear something about quantitative easing, possibly in a statement in an hour. I think I think this feels. Phil Lowe's talking later on this afternoon, so QE is going to uh, QE is going to come. Uh, now, the effect on Aussie equities and the effect on the let's talk the effect on debt markets first. What do you what do you think the effect of QE is? And I think he's talked about whether he's going to try and pin the pin the five year bond rate or four year bond rate. I think because that's where corporates are borrowing, so he's going to try and pin that at fifty basis points or something like that. What are, you, what are your thoughts? It doesn't really do much. To, to yeah. be, uh, so it doesn't cure Corona. Um, it doesn't really impact people's willingness to borrow. Mm. So for the vast majority of people, oh, sorry, gents, yeah. the vast majority of people at this point are thinking, um, how do I pay my bills as an individual and a corporate? Uh, how do I stay solvent? So what you're saying is, if you pick up an extra 25 basis points on your spread now, that's not going to make you want to rush out and buy more more corporate debt. Is that is no? That, oh, no, it, it simply it just yeah, doesn't yeah. really heard it change here first, anything. Yeah. Does, does yeah. it have a confidence factor though? If you know, like, because you know, people trade on confidence. So if you know, if the RBA comes in and says, okay, we're going to fix the risk-free well, rate at X, does that mean that you, you know, and we're going to give assurances open market operations, we're going to pour money into it to make sure it yeah. stays there? Yeah. Is that something that could help steady the boat a little bit? Uh, I would say yes. Uh, look, uh, not that I don't think it makes people want to go out. And Jonathan's just given us an answer as to you know, it's not going to make any difference in terms of as soon as you want to take risk assets. Sure. But to me, it makes a difference as. Is the whole ship going down? Mm. Um, you know, if people lose confidence in government bonds and and the yields there blow out, then all of a sudden, if if I can buy a government bond for for six percent, say That's for right. example, ten year government bond for six percent, or a corporate bond for twelve, then I'm thinking, well, maybe I want the corporate bond to twenty. Yeah, maybe I want right. it twenty five. You know, yeah, there explodes. is a there is a yeah. there's a part of that. Whereas if you go, well, no, no, the the, corp- the government bonds are trading at half a percent. Yep. Okay, now do I want to take a a twelve percent loan from somebody else? Okay, maybe that is a a reasonable pickup or, or whatever so i do think there's that element okay but um yeah but i don't think it's a i, I don't think they're going to save equities it's not a magic yeah magic no and, and and to just put it in context the the japanese uh, the japanese central bank is out there busily right now buying um equity equities and yeah. they're um yeah and equities <laughs> are still going down in japan yeah. Yeah, yes yeah. so um yeah it's not a um not not there to save you from my view anyway, sorry jonathan did you have any that, else that's else pretty much one? it it's it, probably doesn't do much and the flip side to that is always people look at it and go hang on if we're doing all these things the economy must be really 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 bad yeah so i've got to do everything i can to make sure i'm not the one who gets caught out yep yeah good point yeah yep, yep. yeah that's right it's like, it's like your toilet paper stocking yes <laughs> i know i know everyone else needs toilet paper and so tim you shouldn't you shouldn't yeah. go and buy that last uh, roll of six pack you should uh, leave that for somebody who really needs it we're, but, we're down to 28 rolls now it's almost you know it's, it's yeah. crisis point you know like the kids are just eating them i don't know what they're doing with that toilet paper well yeah. I, I think that's there's a uh, black market economy that's going to emerge with people uh bribing elderly relatives to go at 7am and grab the toilet paper for them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah plenty of that. If not, go and get yourself a um, seat per day. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Laugh all the way to the bank. Anyway, yes. uh, is that that's, just interest of time? Yeah, we're yeah that's probably it for okay. the questions. Yeah. yeah, wonderful. Okay, well, look, yeah, great chat today, Jonathan. Um, do you mind oh, just... sorry, actually, before we go, though, yeah. sorry, it's only an hour. That's fine. Okay. We've, got plenty, we've got plenty of time. Right, right, we've still got right. enough room on the tape. Uh, past credit crisis. Okay, that's the one I wanted to get to. Yeah. So, 
in your view, um, so let's 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 maybe take a ninety-one view on this, and then uh, and the comparison, as you said, that there's issues with the financial crisis, the the last financial crisis we had in two thousand eight. That did we ever really fix it, or did we just throw extra money at it and never get out of it? What what do you put down to the um, to the recovery from the two thousand eight, and then sort of contrasting that to, to ninety-one, I suppose, in terms of the last big downturn we had in Australia. Yeah, I think we've got to be thinking about this as the general economic impacts are going to be more like 91, mm. um, that the unemployment rate is going to move, that there is going to be quite a, a substantial amount of unemployment coming through the system. Mm. Uh, I think that's got to be the base case. Australia was so lucky in the last crisis uh, in terms of uh, Chinese stimulus and keeping the miners up. And, and people, people go, oh, it's just the mining industry. But the mining industry has very well-paying jobs mm. and they support a whole bunch of other people in low-paid industries. Mm. If you've got you know, $150,000 a year of income and you spend that, that's a lot of you know, baristas and, and that sort of level of people who can be employed. Mm. So we, we can't forget how helpful that was. Um, so I, I think we've got to start preparing more for that downturn, that 91 type downturn mm. of, of you know, deep economic issues to work through, as opposed to, uh, you know, 2007, where we skated through a lot better. Mm. Yeah. And so, but I guess, what would you see the, um, what are the markers we're looking for to say, okay, we're getting close to the to the, to the bottom? Because uh, I guess it is that thing, we're getting questions about that, when's, when's the bottom? And you're like, just a minute, we started three weeks ago, you know, it's like, we, we need a little bit more patience on this thing. Um, yeah. So what are the indicators you're going to be looking for? Well, at this stage, we, we still haven't seen the sort of um, forced selling that I typically would expect to see in the credit space. It's just mm. too early for that. So we've seen prices drop, mm. and that typically leads to people redeeming from funds, and, and then the forced selling starts. Mm. We, we haven't even started that part yet. So I think... And, and is that almost that um, what we've seen is we've seen uh, government bonds get dumped in the last day or two. Uh, and I think that's, to me, that seems to be the risk parity trade unwinding. But that's these guys are going, well, I can sell my government bonds because they're liquid. I can sell my equities because they're liquid. Well, sorry, the bit large cap equities because they're liquid. I'm not even going to bother trying to sell my corporate debt because I know I'm going to take a 50% haircut on trying to move this thing. And so it's, I'm, he's, he's, I'll sell anything that's not nailed down first. And now I'll come back to the stuff that's nailed down once I've, once I've cleared the decks. Yeah, that's yeah. that's a story that seems to pull together best in terms of why this has happened so fast in mm. the last four weeks, yeah. and why things like you know gold and U.S. Treasuries haven't had a massive run. They haven't had that flight to safety that we yeah. expected. Well, the, well, they did, and then it reversed in the last couple of days. Mm. Yeah, yeah. It, it just seems to be the system was so levered, so many players were far too optimistic, mm. not thinking there was any meaningful downside around the corner. Mm. And they've just been forced. Yeah, and and that's my I've been pushing. There's a this is big risk parity trade out there, and my analogy of it, and I'm, I'm still not a I'm still I'm still stretching with this one to make sure I'm on the right track. But my analogy of that risk parity is basically that. Um, so what you do is you take a sixty forty equities bond portfolio, and then you lever up the bond portfolio to give it more risk to to, to match the risk on the equity portfolio. Mm. And so, and it sounds like it's a great, you know, there's a lot of maths behind it and it sounds really good and you can show how this performs in time and you know, lots of stuff. But you take a big step back and you just go, well, sorry, you started with a 60-40 bond portfolio. Now you have a, whatever, 50-50 bond equity portfolio and lots of debt. Mm. 
Um, so you've basically just worked out a way to get a margin loan in, but mentally account <laughs> for it. On your defensive side. Mentally account for it as this applies to my bonds, it doesn't apply to my equity, so it's not a margin loan. Yeah, right. And so, but the net effect is you've just added lots. And that's the that's the unwind I think we're seeing at the moment mm-hmm. is these ones just getting car- either carried out, so they're not doing it purposely, but or they're just marking to market their models and going, oh, I have to sell everything. I had yeah. leverage of whatever, 50% leverage. I need to move back to 20% leverage because the volatility is blown out. Yeah, and right. so... I just need to sell everything. It doesn't matter what it is. It's out the door and, yep. and get my leverage back. Yeah. Mm, interesting. And I think there's other other players out there. Risk parity, obviously that story falls apart if mm. people start to lose confidence in government bonds. Yeah. That trade really blows up then because you know you could see both equities falling and bond yields rising at the same time. So effectively both asset classes are seeing prices fall. Yeah. There's other levered players like you know, hedge funds, your classic one, who have a whole range of different strategies they pursue at different times, but they've just been hit in a, in a whole number of angles. So things like you know, commodities are down. Um, they might have had bets on currencies and the, the volatility in currencies has gone the wrong way for them. They might have had um, you know, carry trades on and, mm. and the carry trades have blown up because your, your high-risk countries that you lent to, the currency has collapsed on those. Mm. Um, so there's a whole number of angles on why, and, and levering up high yield debt and corporate debt was another thing that mm. hedge funds sometimes do. Well, and let's not forget the whole uh, LTCM, which was for anyone, so that's, that was a, a long-term capital management, which was, I think sort of 97 fell over-ish. And they were basically, um, you know, long, long a 10-year bond and shorter, sorry, short a 10-year bond and long an 11-year bond effectively in, in, in just massive, massive, massive scale, just basically saying we're going to still offset those because the 10-year bond gets priced a bit nicely because people like the like the nice round number and then the 11-year bond, you actually get to pick up a bit of extra yield. Yeah, right. And if we, and just, lever lever up, if we just lever the crap out of that, yep. we can make these tiny little bits of money into massive amounts of money. And then... Works well until it doesn't. Yeah, that's right. But when they got carried out, everyone knew that's what they're doing. So yep. everyone else went... We're taking the opposite side of that trade, yeah, and right. we're just going to see you guys burn. Yeah, yeah. and so, um, and the question is, is there another one of those out there at the moment? Maybe that's another thing that maybe there's some of those that's that's making some funny things happen in the in the bond markets. I'm not sure if there's one big LTCM or, out there. Or a bunch, um, yeah. You know, maybe it's uh, Ray Dalio on Bridgewater. Yeah. Um, who knows? I mean, they don't disclose their position, so everyone's taking a guess. Mm. Um, but I think there's a whole bunch of people who all had the same strategy, which was, you know, assets can't really go down much, so let's lever up and go for it. Mm. And then when they do fall, and they do fall quickly, um, you get, you know, a level of sales because people are scared, and then a level of sales because people have to. Mm. And, yeah. and that's the, the leverage unwind. Yeah. yeah. And it'd be interesting as well. The other thing is a lot of these ones, so there's a day to day guys of the hedge funds, and there's a lot of these month to month or quarter to quarter sort of bigger, longer term. Um, pension funds and, and superannuation funds who are going to get to the end of this month and go, let me just type in my new number for volatility. Oh, I have to sell, you know, X percent and delever. And yep. so, yeah, I'm assuming a lot of those are, are doing it a little bit early this month. But, you know, there is that part where you might, it might not be the, it, it's, there's probably a long tail on this as well, is I guess what I'm getting to, is that people who went, yes, this is a nice, safe strategy. And now they're going, oh, it wasn't a safe strategy. And maybe I shouldn't be, you know, <laughs> Which maybe I just need to, a crisis. Yeah, just exactly. Maybe I crisis. need to now unwind that position, yeah. and that means just selling because we are levered. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's so. a good point. 
Uh, Very good. Yes. Okay. Uh, final on the uh, theme. So uh, I guess we, we don't. Oh, sorry. Actually, we're looking. For, we got sidetracked. Didn't we? We're looking for what signs we're because that's the one I, I want to get to in the end. What signs we're looking for? So first sign's got to be that the credit markets actually open back up again. Yeah. So that's that's step number one. Even if it's a much higher yields, but you know, step number one. The next part. So we're really looking. We're waiting for unemployment to 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 really start kicking in, don't we? Before, yeah. And then signs that it's either slowing because it is a it, unemployment is a lagging indicator though correct yeah correct so i mean in the us they do look at things like unemployment claims which is much sharper mm. but the actual unemployment rate it does take a while longer to to work through mm. um, so clearly something like unemployment claims if you take for instance las vegas I mean, that's a classic boom-bust city. Mm. Um, there will be a huge number of people flying claims for unemployment insurance in Las Vegas because casinos have simply closed down. Closed up, up. Yep. Yeah. yeah. A number of the groups have just said, you know, this 5,000-bed hotel casino mm. is closed. Wow. Yep. Thousands of staff out the door. Mm. So that sort of stuff will show up fairly quickly in uh, the next couple of months. But at this point, uh, you know, in terms of being an asset manager... You bid everything as if it's going to get really bad mm. and it's going to be really bad for a long time and you only buy from people who are willing to take you up on that. Yeah. It's, it's almost just sit and wait and let people figure out that there's perhaps multiple waves to come yet. Mm. Um, so in terms of picking the bottom, you can't pick the top, you can't pick the bottom, yeah. but you can sort of say, okay, this is a bloodbath and people are absolutely desperate. All right, I'll show a number that reflects that. Mm. And, you know, even if it started next week and, and it went for two years, you gradually pick very low numbers, you keep bidding those and, and a few people will take you and that's that's how you manage through. Yeah. You wait, wait for the knife to hit the floor and then pick it up off the floor. Don't <laughs> don't try and catch it on the way down. Yeah. Yeah, or you, well, in credit markets it would be a bit more like saying you estimate where the floor is, like how bad could it get yep. yeah. and then you only sell to people when it's at floor level Yeah. Uh, in that way that you, you never, if you wait until the point where you're pretty sure it's bottomed, mm you're going to miss the bell yes. in terms of getting the cheapest stuff. So yeah. it's a balancing act. Yeah. But, and, and, and as I said, I think, I think it's that unemployment you need to know it's probably the most, the most lagging of all indicators, which is why our central bank was sort of a bit focused on, on unemployment rates. And I'm like, that's, that's the last thing to affect because that's when people, like when, when, things start, when things start to pick up, yeah. you, you, you go through this process and you go, okay, um, oh, all of a sudden people are actually starting to, they're back buying my coffee and all that type of stuff and now I'll, now I'll add another person and I won't fire that other person and like you start going through that, that process. But oh, sorry, I'll start using the people, existing people I've got, mm. and and because they're only working fifty percent capacity, and I'll get them up to hundred percent capacity, and now I'll go and hire somebody else. So the, the boom's already off and running, if you know what I mean, or before you're actually it. saying now I'm going to go find somebody else. And so if you wait for the unemployment rate to start falling, yeah, but there is some acceleration bit, and there's a bit yeah, there's a bit of timing. But it's yeah. interesting with those leading indicators that are getting like the that because that's like you know that's zero day stuff. People lose their job and they go into the unemployment office. It's good little sort of um, side um, bit of data feed, I guess, outside of the, the federal sort yeah. of numbers where they're smoothed and, and, as you say, quite laggy. Yeah, those ones, are, the, the, the flip side is they're noisy. Yeah, and um, Yeah, and at a certain stage, I think what we saw in the, the crisis was, you know, a lot of people lost their jobs, but people weren't getting their jobs back yet. That's yeah. the other part is then, yeah, once yeah. You, that, so they're losing the job, the tape is out, but there's still a, 
there's still a time gap before and how long that gap is before companies start rehiring and stuff like that. It's yeah, not, no, it's fair enough. Yeah, yeah. yeah well, it's no good in Australia because you've got all these asset tests and all these things you can do. You can't just lose your job today and walk into into Centrelink tomorrow. It's, you know, there's these periods you've got to eat down all your, uh, you know, all your cash reserves and all the rest of it. So, yeah. very good. Mm. Uh, anything else? Nope. No, that's probably, that's probably enough for right. enough for one, uh, one go. It is, uh, but we'd love to have you back um, very soon. Jonathan, would you mind uh, just sharing uh, with our audience uh, ways they can get in touch with you and follow some of your work? Yeah, so people are most welcome to jump on the website, uh, www.narrowroadcapital.com. So there's no AU, just narrowroadcapital.com. Uh, the little box pops up and you, you feel free to s- subscribe and, and you'll get my commentary. Uh, people can follow me on Livewire is where I post mostly. Yep. Um, so if you're on Livewire, uh, do sort of jump in. And I, and I guess I'm, I'm happy for people to go through my articles over the last couple of years and say, hey, you got that one wrong. And uh, I think there's a few calls there that I've got pretty much bang on. And, yeah, and sure. So happy to take feedback on that. Um, yeah, and I guess in terms of in terms of what I manage for people, uh, I guess my clients started five million dollars. So it's a it's an institutional only business. So family offices, um, big superannuation funds, uh, insurance funds, etc. So. Um, I don't have any retail products and that comes back to the, the open-ended fund issue and, mm. and avoiding that. So apologies, I can't, I can't take money on that basis. Um, but for larger people, they're welcome to contact and, and we'll have a meeting or we'll have a Skype uh, as this time dictates and, and <laughs> talk through the opportunities that are there. And, and I guess, how do you make money as things get worse for a little bit and then come out and how do you make sure you, you really get those big returns that happen at this point of the cycle? Mm, yeah, fair point. All right, very good. Well, thank you very much, gents, and uh, we'll look forward to, as I mentioned, uh, look forward to getting you on again soon. Uh, hopefully the world's changed yet again uh, for the positive as well, John. So thanks very much for coming down. Thanks, Tim. Thanks, Damien. Thanks. Great to be thanks, here. Well, that's it for now, and thanks for watching. If you like what you heard today and you'd like to hear more, head over to nucleuswealth.com forward slash subscribe. Give us your email address and in return we'll send you a weekly email with new webinar topics, links for our podcasts and other news from Nucleus Wealth. I certainly hope you've got something out of today as I have and we'll look forward to catching you with the next one. Cheers.